From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. And I am a candidate for President of the United States. I am going to run for President, that's correct. What's going to be different this time? We're going to win. We are going to win. I'm the son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for President of the United States. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other campaign and election experts and hear their insight into the 2020 election. And we will make America great again. This is the United States of America. There has never... To announce my candidacy for president of... This is 1050 Bascom, election 2020. This week on 1050 Bascom, Election 2020, we are extremely excited to have on Professor Kathleen Bartson-Culver, the James E. Burgess Chair in Journalism Ethics and Director of the Center for Journalism Ethics in the School of Journalism and Mass Communications here at UW, and Associate Professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communications, Lucas Graves. He is the author of Deciding What's True, The Rise of Political Fact-Checking in American Journalism, and focuses his research around the challenges that digital media poses on established media and political institutions. In this series, we have spent a lot of time analyzing the Democratic candidates for president and the top stories surrounding the primaries. In this episode, we want to dig into how journalists are covering the race and what the implications are for candidates and the public alike. Thank you both so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. It's such a delight to be here. Happy to be here with you. So according to a 2019 Gallup poll, it has America's trust in mass media around 41%. After hitting a low point in 2016, U.S. adults' trust in the accuracy of mass media has appeared to be rebounding. Uh, So while this trust in media is increasing, 41% is still pretty low. Uh, There's also a pretty significant gap, 50%, in the trust of media between partisans. Um, I think it's pretty fair to attribute some of this to the rhetoric of Donald Trump and kind of the uh, current state of our political institutions. Uh, We also see Democratic candidates on the left starting to make punches at the media. Uh, What does this do to people's perception of the media? Um, I mean, so more broadly, I would start off by saying just that uh, the trend that you identified, the decline in trust historically in the media and in other public institutions uh, is very troubling and of real concern. Um, Since the middle of the 20th century, you know, we've seen the number of people who say that you can trust uh, the media to get most things right most of the time. I think that's the way the the question is usually worded. Fall from about three quarters of the public, you know, agreeing that you can trust, trust the media most of the time. Uh, to less than 50%, sometimes as low as low as 40%. I think it even dips below that some years. And that's hugely troubling if we believe that, you know, uh, one of journalism's roles is to uh, give people the information that they need to evaluate political candidates, to decide what are the major issues facing the country, uh, and to decide what reasonable policy solutions might be. And so... Uh, you know, journalism scholars and communication scholars and political scientists spend a lot of time thinking about what are the reasons that trust has fallen so low. And uh, I'll hand it off to Katie in a second. But one really interesting sort of complicating point is that, you know, it may be the case that trust in a lot of public institutions was too high. Trust in government, even trust in the press, uh, trust in the church, for instance, was was a bit too high in the middle of the last century. Um you know, 
uh, in the 1970s uh, and the 1960s with the Vietnam War and Watergate uh, and, other, and other sort of national scandals, um, the public learned you know, just how untrustworthy elites could be in some cases. And so, so the decline in trust is partly a response to that. Uh, but clearly, you need some baseline level of of trust, especially in in journalism and 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 in the sort of nonpartisan press, uh, to be able to have, you know, a democratic conversation. I think um, one of the things I want to be really careful about in this conversation is not using the phrase "the media" or even yeah. the news media. There, there, there are multiple times in my classes where I threaten to fine students a quarter for using that <laughs> term. Um, I think it's really important to talk very specifically about um, what people. Uh, use to get their information and how trust varies based on that. Um, so you'll see a big shift, for instance, um, when you're talking about the news media generally, which is the way Gallup phrases the question, versus news media you use, or local news media versus national news media. And I, I think that's important because we don't want to have sort of a monolithic conception of trust. We want to think about the nuances in people's everyday lives. The other thing I want to point to is, is to, you know, with all due respect to the politically focused, um, I, I get very worried that um, we focus too much on this kind of false binary that every every issue is about left and right. You know, one of the things we're confronting right now is, you know, how will um, a lack of trust in news media affect people's responses to a possible global pandemic with the with the coronavirus? So. When, when we're talking about trust, we're talking about certainly information that you rely on to make your decisions as a citizen in a democracy. Who are you going to vote for? Um, what policy will you support? But it also factors into our, our health, our safety, our conceptions of family, how money operates in our household. And so, you know, if you're thinking about these low levels of trust, less than half of people um, trusting the news media to get it right. Well, what does that mean when you have, um, say, an E. coli outbreak? Like, are, are you really trust them so little that you're actually going to buy and eat the lettuce? Like, no, we need people to understand that the information that's being provided to them um, is something that they can rely on to make important decisions in their lives. Um, but one of the things that I want to add on, you know, blaming a particular person for declining levels of trust in media is that it lets journalism off to too easy <laughs> like mm -hmm. it, it lets us it says it's everyone else's fault it's you know it's Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders or whoever tearing us down and you know that's that's what's hurting us that may be, that may well be true that may well be part of the equation um, but news organizations have done plenty good job shooting themselves in the foot and um, that is an interesting aspect of research that we're seeing now Pew has a study for instance that shows a dramatic increase in trust when um, the respondent sees their news organization as engaged in the community, as responsive to them. So you get this big jump, and it makes perfect sense, right? If if you know your professor is seen as someone who listens to you, you trust that person more. And so I think um, to the extent that news organizations have kept themselves separate from their communities, have not responded, have acted with any sense of arrogance, uh, they're doing damage to their own trust levels. And that's something that, that we all need to work on. You know, Professor Culver suggested earlier that, uh, you know, we shouldn't sort of aggregate all the media together under the label of the media uh, because levels of trust vary quite significantly. And we do see, I mean, study after study shows that people still retain relatively high trust, at least their highest levels of trust, uh, in local news and local outlets, which is both encouraging and uh, somewhat troubling when you consider that 
the economic crisis in journalism has hit local outlets especially hard. No, th so that's that's both encouraging but also troubling when you consider that the economic crisis in news has hit local outlets especially hard, um, and that you know in many uh, sort of local communities we see the emergence of what are sometimes called news deserts, where there really is no longer uh, you know significant ongoing coverage of. Uh, institutions like local government, school boards, uh, and, and so on. The economic crisis in local news is the loss of uh, both advertising and subscription revenue uh, to support newsrooms and, and quality journalism as newspapers and, and news outlets have had to compete with an increasing array of other outlets, uh, especially on the internet, but, but also on cable television. Yeah, I mean, there is there is no denying the crisis um, in 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 all sorts of different ways. It's affecting us. It has um, resulted in a tremendous loss in labor. You know, estimates between forty and seventy thousand jobs shed in local journalism over the last ten to fifteen years. Um, and yeah, two thirds of all journalism jobs. That's it's a nuanced number. It's that's not all reporters. It's also newsroom librarians and printers and and truck drivers. Um, but it's been a tremendous shift in in the local news landscape. There are fewer people doing this work. Professor Graves correctly points out um, that people rely on this. This is their trusted source of news, and yet it's it's under pressure. In some in some places, it's going away. Um, we mentioned the term news deserts. So these are communities that at one point had um, a, a news organization embedded within the community, quite often a weekly newspaper, sometimes a daily, or a radio station that did news coverage. Sometimes more than one, and now those are, have disappeared completely. And so it's a community that is left without a local source of information. And you can imagine many negative effects to that, but one of the ones that we've recently um, learned through research is that partisanship increases, the polarization in a community increases when it becomes a news desert. So when you do not have that shared common set of verified information, people begin to pull apart politically. And that's quite frightening. What do you think is causing that? Or why do you think that is an effect of this news desert that has been created? So one of the, the there are a lot of guesses at why this is, that mm -hmm. as why as, as to why polarization would increase when when local news goes away. Uh, one that I find quite persuasive is that when we don't have a, a, a believable local outlet, we turn to other things that we can find online. And it is incredibly well documented that when people go to try to seek out information sources, they often seek out the ones that reinforce their worldview. It's why, you know, someone who um, supports Bernie Sanders goes to a pro-Sanders blog first thing in the morning to get that sort of little little mental dose of, oh, I'm right. <laughs> and that feels good, right? We all, you know, if my father's very conservative, watch Fox News because it made him feel good to be right mm -hmm. about those issues. So we're, we're very good as humans at reinforcing what we already think. And when we're not challenged in our local community with a set of information that might, might tackle those, those beliefs, um, we just become increasingly polarized. I think that's right. And a related factor is that uh, as local news coverage wanes, often what fills the gap uh, is coverage focused on national politics. Um, and you see that uh, both because people are tuning in to national sources of news. So, you know, think about a talk radio program that might be uh, discussing primarily national politics. 
Um, but also you see it in the wave of acquisitions of local news outlets by national chains who in some cases shift the coverage away from local issues and local politics uh, or reframe their coverage of local politics in national terms. And we know that when people uh, are exposed to um, you know, the sort of national horse race, um, that tends to reinforce their, their partisan divides and you know, uh, contributes to their sort of uh, identities stacking on top of each other in a, you know, in a, way, that's, in a way that's polarizing so that cultural and social and religious and political identities all reinforce each other and reinforce polarization. In communities that are fortunate enough to have local news of any kind, is it at all concerning or can you at all speak to when those news sources are part of a very large, or they're, they're a local affiliate of a very large corporation that is possibly dictating kind of the direction that they want them to go? I'm thinking of a couple years ago, I forget, exactly what company but you yes when you could when you could splice together the videos of all of the local affiliates saying the same exact thing is that at all concerning or can you at all speak to that i i think the sinclair case is a is a fascinating case for a number of different reasons um you, you know they're they had these things called must run editorials so mm -hmm. the local outlet had no choice but to run say a the terrorism desk coming out of the centralized sinclair um, corporate offices. And that takes away the very aspect of local news that prompts people to trust mm -hmm. it. It is that the people who are making decisions about the news product are my neighbors. They shop at my grocery store. I saw them at the bank drive through And when that happened, there was significant blowback against Sinclair across the political spectrum. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was not, you know, the, there was a conservative bias toward what was coming from Sinclair, but I, I think a lot of conservatives were very uncomfortable yeah. with this idea because they saw that it could be happening in the other direction. At they some suddenly point. saw some big brother kind of thing. Right. Um, so I so I think it was concerning in a lot of ways. To me, it, it was a source of optimism <laughs> because there was this tremendous blowback. Yeah. The problem was pointed out in very creative terms, um, use social tools to amplify the message, and Sinclair backed off. There are fewer must-runs now. I, I agree with all of that. Um, I do think in general it's tr that that sort of trend is troubling. You know, Sinclair is what I had in mind when I sort of referred obliquely to national chains buying up local yeah. stations. Um, but you find echoes of that in, in radio broadcasting as well over the last couple of decades. Um, I think it's also important to point out that uh, you can really see how the economic challenges facing news reinforce that trend because, in fact, uh, it's cheaper to reproduce some version of national coverage at the local level than it is to support local reporting. And so, again, we end up in a situation where we have news that is less reflective of the concerns of people in a given community um, and a strong economic incentive you know, for the for the news providers to go in that direction because, you know, they can th they're trying to hold on to large audiences but sort of cut costs uh, by by just reproducing national national reporting and national stories. Yeah. Sorry. You want to accompany that? I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I want to point out something else here, and and that is that it's very easy to say that this buying up of local television stations or newspapers is bad and we we shouldn't have it um and you know ooh, the big chain is coming in i'll use the um gannett gatehouse merger which has which has 
plenty, tens of thousands of critics, um, maybe even millions. Um, but if you're in a community where Gannett has bought up your newspaper, um, and now it's the Gannett Gatehouse combo, um, my question is, does your car dealership advertise? Does, does your household subscribe to it? You know, did you were you doing enough to support the the local news ecology in your community before something happened that was negative? You know, we all have a responsibility um, as citizens to be well informed, and and I'm not saying that. I think we should blindly support the news model as it has always existed. I think there. Are, disruptions happen for a reason. They happen because things were not working as they should. Um, but sometimes I think there's a really shallow response to these um, to these mergers and acquisitions that sort of it doesn't account for the on-the-ground reality. And I would say, in the case of Wisconsin specifically, there's an argument that Gannett buying up papers around this state was actually good for this state because it enabled some reporting um, that would not have been possible otherwise. So Gannett now, its footprint is now 11 papers, including the largest in our state, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Um, but prior to that, they had 10. And um, in the, gosh, I think, it might have even been prior to 2010, Quite literally, the only people paying attention to op opioid deaths in the state were the Gannett Papers. Wisconsin did not have any record of opioid overdose deaths in this state. And the 10 Gannett Wisconsin Papers went out to all 72 counties and did record searches to find out who had died um, of overdoses. You, that you would not have been able to document that situation in this state if it weren't for the combined strength. You know, there is no one paper that could do that on its own. So there are cases like that where that collaboration um, can be quite powerful. If I had one one thing I would suggest to news media today, it would be that we should be collaborating across corporate lines much more, like just knock down the competitive walls a little bit and report on those kinds of public issues um, in ways that matter to people. So you know maybe the three local TV stations in Madison could report on public safety together in a way that you know they're not necessarily going to gain viewers competitively over one another, um, but they're going to be serving the public and reinforcing their value and why they should be trusted. Do I think that those competitive walls are coming down anytime soon? No, <laughs> I don't, unfortunately. Do you think there's any institutional or structural change that could make that a possibility? That would make more collaboration a possibility? Yeah. I mean, actually, that's, I mean, I think that's one of the most significant and widely recognized trends uh, in professional journalism today. You see it sort of taking a variety of different forms. One really important one is that uh, any number of uh, sort of investigative news nonprofits, both at the national level and at the local level, uh, have as part of their distribution model that they always partner with, you know, with established outlets that have a bigger reach. Almost always, not always, but almost always, those are commercial outlets. Um, and I think it's fair to say that that in turn has helped to, you know, shift the culture uh, uh, towards collaboration, even among commercial outlets. And you do see, you know, growing examples of, of, of collaboration uh, among, among commercial newsrooms. Um, so that's sort of a profound ongoing shift in the culture of journalism, which had always celebrated, you know, this sort of intense competition for scoops. I mean, actually, there were always sort of hidden forms of collaboration that just weren't talked about as much. Um, but certainly, you know, those tended to be hidden 
uh, and and you know journalists always understood themselves as being involved in the sort of you know life or death competition for you know to get the story first and I don't think you'd say that that's is true anymore you know that's balanced with a sense that um, that any one newsroom's reporting is building on uh, the the work of other newsrooms and that journalists can only provide the kind of coverage that's needed if they sort of recognize that and and embrace that so maybe we can talk a little bit about how reporters choose their stories or how news organizations um, sort of set the agenda that's something I think a lot of voters think about a lot and have frustrations with maybe one of you or both of you could speak to how the agenda gets set and how medias choose their stories so one really important distinction to draw when you're thinking about you know uh, agenda setting uh, is sort of whose agenda you mean right so traditionally that refers to the ability of news organizations to set the agenda for citizens broadly in terms of uh, you know in the classic formulation not telling citizens what to think, but rather uh, telling them what to think about, right? So there's been a long tradition of research that starts in the 1970s uh, showing that people generally identify as important those issues that the news media have been, have been paying attention to. Um, but a completely separate question is uh, the news media's ability to set the agenda for politicians, right? for members of Congress, for the president. Um, and both of those have changed in a more sort of fragmented media landscape. And as digital media and social media have uh, you know, become increasingly relevant, um, but they've changed in different ways, resulting in a, in a pretty complicated picture. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a complicated picture. One of the things that I would point to is that a lot of, you, you asked specifically how news media decide what to cover, and a lot of that it, it has traditionally been a matter of routines. Mm -hmm. So if it's new, it's more likely to get covered. If it is, um, if it's unusual, it's more likely to get covered. If it's proximate, it's more likely to get covered. And one of the things that has always been a sort of standard practice that I see more blowback on today than I ever would have expected is this idea that if it's if it's conflict laden, it's more likely to get covered. And you know, when I go out and I in my work with the center, I do a lot of public talks. And if there is one thing that people complain about universally, it is that. It is why am I constantly reading about conflict? And you know, when you had um, people talking about um, coverage of President Trump when he was then candidate Trump. His, um, you know, his free media, his news coverage of his campaign, so far outpaced that of his um, rivals, to their great chagrin. Um, people kept asking why. You know, the, the then president of CBS, Les Moonves, now now gone, um, for very good reasons, um, famously said, "Donald Trump may be bad for America, but he's very good for CBS." Um, and people complained, like, why is that? You know, my my daughter was 14 at the time, and I remember her being like kind of a, a teenage media critic because, you know, we would watch CBS News in the morning while we were having breakfast, and she would say, why is he the first story again? She would see, you know, minute 17, they'd have some California wildfire, and she'd say, that's more important than, uh, than Trump. And the reason, I think, reasons that uh, Trump got that massive coverage was that he has this 
just innate understanding of how news media work. So he always played to the novel. It was new every day. Um, and he played to conflict. Uh, there was a, there's a fantastic, um, uh, situation in which one of the candidates was doing a, a live press conference. He was taking news media questions and um, all three of the cable networks did not uh, stream him live. They instead showed an empty podium at a Trump rally. He, the candidate had not even arrived yet um, and and they were showing that rather than someone actually fielding news media questions. So I think, um, you know, how much conflict sets the agenda is a very clear but questionable routine in journalism. I think another important criticism of the way the agenda is set in news media now um, is the is coverage of events versus coverage of issues. Crime would be a fantastic lens through which to view this criticism. So, you know, constantly reporting on individual homicides within a city um, as opposed to looking at the much more important structural issues. Um, and I think that's something that ethically is quite fraught. Um, I, I was a police and courts reporter in my past life, and I consider that one of the, the, the great ethical um, problems in my, in my professional life, and, and that is that I was you know, sort of routinely covering you know, drug bust after drug bust after drug bust, I missed entirely the overarching social issue of mass incarceration. Like this state was ground zero for mass incarceration. Um, the, the rates are stunning. They would stop a team of oxen in its tracks. And I missed it because I was, you know, just covering going event to event and not asking critical questions about the larger issues. And I think that's, a, that's something we face a lot in journalism, that people think about ethics as, you know, micro decision making. Am I going to name this victim or not? Am I going to cover this case or not? Um, and instead, we need to be thinking much more about the macro issues. Am I properly representing this society as it exists right now? Am I representing the tremendous racial bias that is infecting every single level of my criminal justice system. Um, that's the much, much, much more important and much more audience-serving um, way to go at this coverage. But Lucas is right. It is not the thing that results in a ton of traffic. You know, the, there are, um, in during the uh, Clinton-Lewinsky scandal, for instance, lots and lots of um, survey data <laughs> showed us that public opinion said, you're playing way too much to these salacious <laughs> elements of this, and you should stop covering it. There are much more thing, important things going on in the country. Far and away, the most consumed news coverage was coverage of the salacious. So as, as citizens, sometimes we're asking for things that we then don't actually consume. Professor Graves, we know that your research is specifically regarding political fact-checking and the impact of digital media and other mass media outlets uh, on political institutions. How does fact-checking work in debates? Does it matter in the long run if a candidate tells a white lie, or what about a bigger one? So fact-checking doesn't work very well in debates today, um, but it could work a lot better. You know, I think it's important to say at the outset that uh, fact-checking is never going to be, you know, the sort of grand fix for, you know, what's wrong with our, with our democracy. Um, but, uh, you know, if we built fact checks into debates in a more sort of careful and thoughtful way, uh, then they could make a difference in that they would force candidates to at least offer reasons for positions they've defended 
that independent fact checkers have found aren't backed up by evidence, right? So the idea uh, is to move away from fact checking as a kind of gotcha moment where you're slapping a buzzer uh, and you know catching the candidate off guard. Um, that's an especially bad idea in debates when doubtless the moderators would make mistakes um, and they would be criticized for you know unfairly interrupting a candidate. Um, that's not what we want to see, but if we you know had a kind of round of questions for each candidate that were based on one or two fact checks that have been published about them uh, and that again just gave them a chance to say well look here's why you know I don't agree with that fact check or here's the evidence that I have uh, that supports my position I think that would be really useful and it might you know encourage candidates to stick a bit closer to uh, to points that they can defend uh, with evidence. So Facebook recently announced that it would not be taking down political advertisements that knowingly contain fake information. What are the ethical implications that social media networks need to take into consideration regarding the circulation of fake information? So in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election, I, I really thought Facebook was sort of... Um, kind of monolithically defensive and naive about about the influence um, of mis and disinformation on its platform. I think they quickly sort of turned and, and realized um, that there had been influence, but an influence in ways that none of us really quite recognized at the time. I mean, um, you know, some of the disinformation was um, so sophisticated, you know, as someone who studies this, I could not suss it out. The New York Times had this fantastic um, comparison of maybe maybe four sets of Facebook posts um, that played to social um, points of social conflict in the U.S. So race, for instance, one post from a real group and one post um, from uh, the uh, Russian agency. And I couldn't tell them apart. I think I, I think I was maybe one for four or one for six on those. And so it was it was sophisticated in a way that I think people didn't recognize. And unfortunately, three years hence, I don't think we've come that far in what we're going to do about this. I also think that underlying Facebook's recent policy stances is, again, I would call it a naive um, acceptance of... Um, a theory of the of the First Amendment called the marketplace of ideas. They they're not bound by the First Amendment. They're a private company. They're not the U.S. government, so they can censor whatever they want. Um, but they've adopted this idea that um, the marketplace of ideas is a great thing. And when I when when expression comes into competition in the market, eventually the truth will emerge. I think what we've seen over the past three years is that that's not necessarily the case. And if it is the case, it may take too long um, for that truth to emerge. So um, in some sense, I get where they're coming from. There are a lot of political theorists across centuries who would who would support the decisions that um, Zuckerberg and team are making. Um, but I don't think they're taking into account sufficiently the power of their platform and the speed at which this communication is coming and what happens when you have bad actors purposefully misusing that platform to pollute an, an information environment, how exactly how successful they can be. I, I do get concerned when people talk about the lack of effect um, of mis and disinformation in the 2016 campaign because the effect that they're usually focused on is the vote, um, is whether this affected someone's vote. And I don't think that's necessarily what the bad actors are after. So if you're thinking about 
you know, an author authoritarian like Putin trying to have an influence here, the influence isn't necessarily affecting electing one candidate over another. It's 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 reducing trust in institutions. It's sowing discord. It's making democracy look messy and ugly and not like the right form of government. And it's getting us to fight with each other so that we, on on a larger stage, we're less interested um, in in exerting power in the way that, that the United States previously has. Not not that I'm necessarily defending that power across the board. So I think you know when people sort of are reductionist and say, well, it didn't sway many people's votes. I don't necessarily think that is the most important thing that we should that we should be focused on, and I don't think it's necessarily the motivation of those actors. One of the things that I think is most fascinating, this gets a, a little bit into wonky legal territory, is that. This mis and disinformation and, and this kind of tumultuous situation with platforms has brought to the forefront something that even five years ago I never would have guessed would have happened, and that is people actively questioning um, this protection that these platforms get under the law in the U.S. So we have this thing called Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and it provides massive liability protection to these platforms. So it's what, it is what protects YouTube when uh, Lucas writes a comment under a video that defames me. I can sue Lucas, but I can't sue YouTube or Google. <laughs> um, that is a tremendous protection. So, so you know, every time something noxious runs on Facebook, or every time someone puts a defamatory con comment on Twitter, those entities are protected. All of this toxic stew that's been going on with mis and disinformation and hate speech and other things has now now has um, prominent figures on the left and the right both questioning whether those Section 230 protections go too far. I really never thought I would see that in my lifetime. I never thought I would see platforms get to that level of power um, within this society that people began to question that basic legal protection that a lot of scholars argue enabled the innovation that gets us to where we are today. Thank you both so much for joining us today. You've given us a lot to ponder about how we are consuming our own media. I'm sure that a lot of people will be thinking about how they are consuming news now in the future. Um, so thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. For more information about the podcast and to submit questions regarding the 2020 elections, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom Election 2020.